So I don't think of myself as, as something, you know, as a affirmative action project. I don't think of myself as something that needs to be added to something that already exists. I think that the, the intellectual pathways that I travel are very Southern indeed. And that the Southernness of that travel has to do with the fact that I believe that my presence is not only absolute, but enduring. This is Southern Futures. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion with the Center for the Study of the American South. Joining me today is Dr. Sharon Holland, professor and chair of the Department of American Studies at UNC. Sharon looks at death. She studies marginalized communities, connecting race, gender, sexuality, and all the things we usually put into their own little boxes. And she is an African-American equestrian. Yes, Black folk are part of the equestrian world, y'all. Sharon and I will get to that in just a bit. But first, welcome to the show, Sharon. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here and to have this time to converse with you. Your interests are varied and you have some heavy new responsibilities at a time when decisions and work may count more than ever, I would say. So when did you start thinking about going into um, academia, being a professor. So tell us, where did you see yourself way back when? Oh, wow. This is, a, this is one of those stories that takes me way back. I think I was 12. My father was a physician, and he was a great um, chemist. He worked with a compounding pharmacist, and he had a practice and even though my parents had divorced when I was seven, when I was 12, you know, I think my father had been under the, uh, the, under the impression that I would take over his practice, that I would, you know, go into STEM. They call it STEM now, but go into some form of, you know, scientific investigation. And I, call, I read a poem. I don't even remember now what the poem was, but I remember calling my father. You know, this is a very important conversation that I need to have with you. And I told him that I wanted to be a poet, that that was going to be my life and I wasn't going to be pursuing anything revolving around medicine. And um, my dad had a pretty healthy stutter, which only manifested itself with his family, interestingly enough, and not really with his patients. And I remember my dad stuttering a bit and getting it out and saying, well, well, you, you better find a way to support yourself. <laughs> you better find a day job if you're going to be a poet. And I think from that moment on, um, and by the time I got to high school, I just, I wanted to be a writer. And um, that's all I ever wanted to be from that moment on. And now this is taking you to an entirely new role. In addition to being a professor, uh, you have this new role as chair of the Department of American Studies. And this is really historic because you're the first queer, African-American, cisgender woman to chair the department. So other than the already enormous responsibilities of chairing a department at a major university, what sort of additional pressure is it for you, if any, if any, to be a chair at a university like UNC? Well, first, I am thrilled to be chair of the department. I can't imagine a better time, a better faculty, and I am very honored um, to, to take on this position I think there's two intersections here. Um, and 
This is something I learned after the Amendment 1 campaign um, during the time when I was involved with Equality UNC, I mean UNC, Equality NC, and also um, working with folks who were representing Song, Southerners on New Ground. And, you know, I learned something about statistics here. You know, there are three of them, very central. The first is that the majority of out queer people who raise children live in the South. The majority of those who are out and queer are usually people of color. Mm-hmm. And that there's a high concentration of black lesbians in particular raising children in our state. And one of the other things that I already knew is that really the field that I am most indebted to and work within sexuality studies was founded, sexuality studies as in queer theory was actually founded in the South at Duke University. Mm. If you want to talk about founding, right? If you want to use that vocabulary um, with Eve Sedgwick and others. And so I feel that doing what I do here, being chair as a, as a cisgendered woman and queer person in this space in North Carolina, one, I'm coming home. And two, I'm not an anomaly for not only the field that I, that one of the fields that I investigate and also for the fact that I'm out and queer and living in the South. And so mm-hmm. I feel that I don't experience my uniqueness in that regard. But I do feel like this is a challenging time because we have two public health crises, racism and COVID-19. You are dealing with so many things. We all are giving the crises that we're in. And yet also you told me this wonderful news today where you really are opening up and helping someone else as they're going through this crisis. So you you received some incredible news today. Um, can you share yes. that with us? Yeah. When the pandemic, um, you know, hit our shores and it became very clear that we were going to follow the way of folks in Wuhan and other places in the world and go to stay-at-home orders um, in March, I don't know. It reminded me of the first pandemic that I lived through in in my 20s, um, the HIV, which became a pandemic, which we knew was going to be a pandemic. And it reminded me of that. And I think the desire to do something in that moment led to a connection that I already had with um, queer and transgender activists in the Carborough, Chapel Hill, Triangle region. And I literally ran into, into Tiz Giordano at Weaver Street Market. And I was like, I just got a teaching award. I have a little bit of money. Who needs help? Well, can we do something? And they were like, are you kidding me? Yes. So we started this mutual fund and a mutual aid fund for QTI, POC, that's queer, trans, indigenous, people of color. We've mm-hmm. given out so far since late March. We got a $10,000 grant from the Third Wave Fund. We've gotten, I'm waiting on $1,500 to come from a corporate sponsor, which we're gonna announce on our page. Um, Another $500 um, has been given to us by um, the Southern Vision Alliance, I believe. And we're writing grants. We're an unincorporated association about to become a not-for-profit. And through this work, It's a low barrier fund. Through all of the work that we've been doing to keep our community members safe, to distribute funds to those who need them, to distribute funds in a transparent way where everyone knows everybody else, you know, Mm -hmm. they're all familiar with one another as organizers and participants. 
And um, there's an accountability here that's amazing. In, in one week, if we somebody wants something, somebody needs something in a, a given distribution week, and someone else feels like they can wait, they actually forego their chance wow. to receive funds so that somebody else can be supported. I have been so heartened, especially during a pandemic where we saw people, you know, hoarding toilet paper and, you know, mm-hmm. really pulling their own world so close. The extent to which my, our queer community is, is, is eyes wide open, arms wide open right now yeah. is amazing. And what came about, what came from there is um, the chance to be a home host for the LGBTQ Center in Durham. And um, as a home host, I will host a young adult in my home as they transition to, you know, being more independent. And I'm really excited about that. It's going to happen for me this week. And, you know, I, I can't imagine a better time to try to live differently. I think this call, this global call for us to slow down, stay at home and really think is one of the memes that was going around on the internet was like, I think the earth told us all to go to our rooms to think about what we've done. And um, I actually took that call seriously and seriously amidst the death and the devastation and the inability to mourn in the way people want to mourn. I mean, to be able to help people survive this time as someone who survived HIV when it first came to us is such a gift, such a gift. And to be able to to bring someone into my home and create that wider family that I believe in, it's incredible, just incredible. As I grew up in black culture as a child, my mother's people are from North Carolina, so I'm like sixth generation North Carolina. My mother went to UNC and graduated in 61. You know, part of our discussions when I was a child in my grandmother's living room were about black intellectual figures. And I know that history. And it's very difficult to interact with people who are interested in interacting with me who don't know that history. This is Southern Futures, and our guest is the Townsend Ludington Distinguished Professor of American Studies and Chair of the Department of American Studies at UNC, Dr. Sharon Holland. Sharon, you're also the convener of the university's Critical Ethnic Studies Initiative. You do not look at race as a standalone or gender by itself or sexuality or inclusion as separate things in our world. Your work requires that we look at how all these things intersect to create where we are and who we are. So the way you put it to me that really stuck was, what are we to one another? Critical ethnic studies was started um, um, toward the end of the 20th century. And it, it began as an investigation of a critical analysis of existing ethnic studies work in this country in particular. Critical ethnic studies thinks is exactly what it says. It thinks critically of ethnic studies. And that's so, and that's the reason why it's so important for us to understand not only how we intersect with one another as ethnic, quote unquote, racialized beings, but also what is possible in through those connections. 
And so a critical ethnic studies, a, a typical ethnic studies project sometime in the 70s, 80s might have been always already looking at blackness, looking at brownness, looking at indigeneity and its relationship with whiteness and the state and certain structures. I'm not saying that critical ethnic studies doesn't do that work. But what we're also interested in critical in, in critical ethnic studies and why it's so important in the work that I do, my own scholarship, is that it thinks about the ways in which indigeneity and Native Americanness and blackness and Latinx peoples, how we intersect, how we interact with one another, the worlds that we create together. Right? And how, despite modes of structural um, exclusion and abusive institutional structures, not like, you know, we've survived. You know, we're not like, I don't think there's that celebratory mode. But despite that, alongside those experiences, we have also connected to, with one another in meaningful ways and in ways that have produced whole swaths of scholarship and art and cultural engagement and visual culture. I mean, all the things that, you know, create this Southern future that we all imagine. A Southern future is one in which foodways, music, art, other forms of visual culture, voice, and intellectual thought combine. Critical ethnic studies takes intellectual thought very seriously. And I think one of its tenets is that if you are going to be working with a people, you need to, yes, know their history, but even more importantly, you need to know their intersection, intersecting histories and their cultures. I find myself returning to this issue of silencing in our nation's history, sort of like what's been left out of the nation's story who's been left out of the nation's story, and your book, Raising the Dead, Readings of Death and Black Subjectivity, um, explores that silence in a way it does, uh, just some of my interpretation of that. But your, your writing is theoretical. Talk to us about that, that book. That was your first book, Raising the Dead, right? That was a labor of love. Um, I think the best way to describe how that book came about is to really highlight a conversation I had with my editor, Ken Whisaker, um, who was my editor in that 19th century way, in that we found mm -hmm. one another when I was a young scholar, and he knows my heart and my mind, and he's very honest with me when I hand him a book. And he, you know, Duke has first right of refusal for my projects because, you know, I will always want to work with Ken because he asked me something very important in that book. He said to me, okay, you're like 28 years old, almost 30, you know, writing this book about death. <laughs> you need to tell people why you're writing this book. And I thought about it and I didn't want to. And then I went back and I wrote the preface to the book. So the book is really about a journey I took after my dad died of a self-inflicted wound. I was 24 and at the time I felt like a grown-up. But now when I look back, I was just a baby. <laughs> I didn't know all that much. Um, and it was, it, it, Michael Tausig talks about the space of death. He's an anthropologist. And I felt myself literally being sucked into a room away from other human beings in this space of death. And mm. I didn't, I had, in order to come out of that moment um, and 
and the devastation of what happened and how my own bio family, my mother's family in particular, reacted to it, I threw my intellect at death. And I read literature about death and dying. I talked, I, I began to see, or, you know, I was looking in particular at Bill T. Jones's work and really embracing kind of that HIV AIDS moment, you know, um, in our culture. I began to look at figures like Tupac Shakur and this kind of like death drive that seemed to be going on within hip hop culture mm -hmm. and particularly. And I also thought about Toni Morrison's work in Beloved mm. and um, that Beloved doesn't just, isn't a ghost. Beloved comes back. Right. And so I began to really take on this kind of nether world, this kind of space of death, and think about what it offered as a contemplation for intellectual work on Black subjects, on Black, um, and on Black culture in particular. To me, and especially in this moment where we're looking at anti-black racism in particular. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of that Central Park moment in Amy. I think if that person had told themselves, you know, had been asked, you know, could you, would you, in a park, say something to an African-descended person or try to harm them, I think they would have been like, are you crazy? No, no way. Amy just loses it. Right, and, right. you know, really, I mean, literally becomes a completely other person to themselves in that moment. Right. And that's what I call the psychic life of the slaveocracy. That, you know, the questions I ask in my work revolve around that focal point. And that is, is that 200 plus years, and this is a conservative estimate, of watching backs flailed, of watching beings being injured, hurt, captured, chained, manacled, sold. What did that do to our culture? And how, when you're transitioning from that moment, then into Jim, then into formal extralegal lynching and Jim Crow and civil rights and the prison industrial complex, that moment just keeps carrying itself forward as the psychic life of our nation which is bound up with harm to black beings. And my work goes to that space. My work tries to unpack that psychic life. We have to ask ourselves, what becomes of us in those moments? What, is, what bubbles up? And I think what bubbles up is what's always been there. That's why I keep telling folks we need, a, we need an anti-racist practice. We need an anti-racist practice that we can that we can then that we can utilize every day. Because if we don't have one, the only thing that's available to us in these interracial moments is what Amy called up, what that police officer. Sharon, we mentioned at the top of the podcast that you are an equestrian, but as a scholar, are you often disappointed and maybe even surprised that folks, that they're surprised that African-Americans are and have been equestrians. I don't think it's shocking to anyone in, anymore because in all the Black Lives Matter protests that we've had across this country in particular, Black riders have shown up. You know, the riders in Houston, um, I think riders in Philly. Most of them are Western seat, and I, I ride in the English seat, and I study that tradition. I ride a quarter horse uh, mayor. Her name is Annie. And um, 
when I returned to North Carolina because I wanted to come down here because this is my you know, family seat. This is where my mother's people are from. I decided that I was going to return to writing because the, there's a barn every 20 minutes in North Carolina. I'm like, certainly I can find a barn and a trainer and, you know, a pony to ride. And what people don't know is that I didn't return to do something that is an anomaly for blackness. I returned to the place where the hunt seat began. Um, first race was in the 18th century, mid 18th century, with um, in North Carolina, in with uh, I think three enslaved beings on three quarter horse mares, one of whom I'm sure was a chestnut, <laughs> <laughs> and um, that was literally the beginning of America's sport, which is racing. And African-descended people, the Malenke people, were brought over here because of their horse personship. And we have been trainers, jockeys, and horse people from day one. And it means a lot to me when I, when Annie and I are together, I feel, I don't feel like I'm trying to fit into a world that excludes me. When we ride, I feel like I'm fulfilling my legacy as an African-descended person in North Carolina. And apparently my mom told me that my grandfather, who died when my mother was 17, um, my grandfather um, had, a, had a ranch, uh, had horses in Georgia, which is where he was from. And so I feel like I come from horse people. And I mean, and I investigate that in part of the new book that I'm working on. I, I think about, you know, what would it mean for us to change our opinion of of black people's relationship to the animal and black people's relationship to to worlding, to creating animal cultures. You did receive a distinguished teaching award this year. So what is your goal for students when you begin each semester? Because obviously you connect with students in a really meaningful way. Our job as educators is to connect with students um, in the totality of who they are. I tell my students my job is to know you all past this course. That is my assumption. So let's get started. You know, I want to care for them. I feel like we're so busy telling ourselves what we cannot do that we, for, we don't practice exercising the boundaries that allow us to do more. Instead, we have a lot of rules like, you know, don't do this, don't do that, which means like we cut ourselves off. We cut the, you know, we cut the part of ourselves off that actually can connect in a real way. You know, our job is once we make that connection is to build the ethical life that we have around that connection and nurture it so that our students feel, um, you know, first and foremost challenged at their core by us. But in terms of your intellectual work that you need to do, well, you know, it's going to feel pretty challenging and, and rather unsafe right away. Because I am not here to bring you what you already know, to confirm what you already know. I'm here so that we can become recognizable to one another in really meaningful ways that will, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm just an optimist, but, you know, change each other in meaningful ways that will change this world.
we are moving into our Southern Futures reading corner. Um, I know that you're a Toni Morrison fan, and we've had other folks pick Toni Morrison, but you pick something else today. So tell me, you know, what what did, what are you reading for us, and, and why did you pick this particular selection? I picked this selection because how often do people read Black Feminist Theory in a podcast? <laughs> not often, not often. Right? And, I, and of course, any of my students um, who are listening to this are going to know exactly what essay I'm going to be reading from. I'm going to pick a 19, I believe, 1987 essay written by Hortense Spillers. It's called Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American Grammar Book. I'm going to read the last three paragraphs. And I'm not going to give any praise for the reading. I'm just going to read it. I think she is one of the most gifted theorists alive. And I also believe that she is one of the most beautiful writers of theory that I've known. The African-American male has been touched, therefore, by the mother handed by her in ways that he cannot escape and in ways that the white American male is allowed to temporize by a fatherly reprieve. This human and historic development, the text that has been inscribed on the benighted heart of the continent, takes us to the center of an inexorable difference in the depths of American women's community, colon, The African-American woman, the mother, the daughter, becomes historically the powerful and shadowy evocation of a cultural synthesis long evaporated. The law of the mother, only and precisely because legal enslavement removed the African-American male not so much from sight as from mimetic view, as a partner in the prevailing social fiction of the father's name, the father's law, Therefore, the female, in this order of things, breaks in upon the imagination with a forcefulness that marks both a denial and an illegitimacy. Because of this peculiar American denial, the black American male embodies the only American community of males handed the specific occasion to learn who the female is within itself. The infant child who bears life against this could be fatal gamble against the odds of pulverization and murder, including her own. It is the heritage of the mother that the African-American male must regain as an aspect of his own personhood, the power of yes to the female within. This different cultural text actually recognizes in historically ordained discourse certain representational potentialities for African-Americans. Motherhood as female blood right is outraged, denied, at the very same time that it becomes the founding term of a human and social enactment. That was point one, sorry, this is point two. A dual fatherhood is set in motion, comprised of the African father's banished name and body and the captor father's mocking presence. In this play of paradox, only the female stands in the flesh. Both mother and mother dispossessed. This problematizing in gender of gender places her, in my view, out of the traditional symbolics of female gender, and it is our task to make a place for this different social subject. In doing so, we are less interested in joining the ranks of gendered femaleness than gaining the insurgent ground as female social subject. Actually claiming the monstrosity of a female with the potential to name, 
which our culture imposes in blindness, sapphire, might we write, after all, a radically different text for female empowerment. Thank you for sharing that with us. I want to ask you, and maybe that's a perfect moment to end on, but if you will think about as we wrap the show up, how you reimagine the South, um, in particular in the reflection of the work that you do and just who you are as a person, when you think and reimagine what the future is for the South, what, how do you reimagine? Well, I think Toni Morrison said it best when she said, how do you erase a culture seething with our presence? So I don't think of myself as, you know, as a affirmative action project. I don't think of myself as something that needs to be added to something that already exists. I think that the intellectual pathways that I travel are very Southern indeed. And that the Southernness of that travel has to do with the fact that I believe that my presence is not only absolute, but enduring. And what I'm trying to do is actually get everybody interested in thinking about the self in its actuality. Sharon, thank you for your time and for sharing your insights with us. We wish you, of course, the best in your new role as chair of the Department of American Studies at UNC, and we look forward to your new book. Thanks also to our listeners for joining us, and please, I want to invite you to queue up the next episode of Southern Futures. For executive producer Dr. Melinda Maynor-Lowry and sound editor Mark Meyer, I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion. Southern Futures is a podcast powered by the Southern Futures Initiative, a collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Southern Futures, reimagine the American South.